We don't normally make a big deal of the players that are up on the stage, the people who come up and say anything, but because I don't want you to um, miss this, it was just what just happened was really remarkable. You say, well, what just happened and what was remarkable? Well, Jerry McAllister just read the scripture to you. Jerry has in the past year had not one, but two detached retinas. And the fact that he could read to you is miraculous. So, so we are really thankful to the Lord and just wanted you to see what God is doing in Jerry's life. Thank you for um, blessing us, Jerry. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 9? Romans is in the New Testament, second half of your Bible. And the book of Romans is about halfway through that second half. And Romans chapter 9 is considered by many to be one of the more difficult parts of the Bible. In fact, one, <laughs> one of the commentaries that I read this, this week said this, Romans 9-11 through 11 is as full of problems as a hedgehog is of prickles. Many have given it up as a bad job. You can tell he's British, right? Many have given it up as a bad job, leaving Romans as a book with eight chapters of gospel at the beginning, four chapters of application at the end, and three of puzzle in the middle. And so I want you to turn to the puzzle in Romans uh, chapter... But even as you do, I want to remind you of what problem we're solving, what question we're addressing here in Romans chapter 9. He, he, he announces the problem he wants to address in verse 6 when he says, It is not as though the Word of God has failed. The issue is, has God's Word failed? which is a big deal, not just to a church in Rome, not just to the the Gentile faction of that church, but certainly to the Jewish part of that church who was very conscious of having the ethnic right to the promises of God. And so has God's Word failed to the Jews? Has it failed to the Gentiles? Has it failed to the church? Has it failed to you and me? And his number one answer to that question is right here in the rest, in the second part of verse 6, when it says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So, the, the, the initial way that he answers that question is to say, the, the promise was never intended to every single, um, to every single physical descendant of Abraham. So, if you're thinking in terms of nations or peoples or families, you're thinking in the wrong way. That's his first part of his answer. The problem is restated in verse 14. It says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? Has God proven Himself to be unjust or unrighteous? And his answer, the second part of his answer then, it's really the same question, says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The second part of the answer is that God is free. 
to show mercy to whom he will show mercy. And he quotes, he quotes Moses reminding them how wonderful it is that God is free because he quotes uh, Moses or he quotes actually quotes God himself speaking to Moses on the mountain after they had made a golden calf. Just for your reference, God was not happy about the golden calf. Okay? In fact, rightfully, God was very upset that they attributed the deliverance from Egypt to a golden calf. They deserved judgment. In fact, God was in negotiation, you might say, with Moses about judging the people of Israel because of their infidelity at the very, very beginning. And he announced then to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I am free to show the kind, my kindness to whomever I will. And that's what sets us up then to get to the text that we're going to read now. So Jerry's already started this. But if God is free to show mercy to whom He will, and harden whom He will, verse 18, you will say to me then, why does He still find fault? Who can resist His will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. I hope you recognize some of the prickles in here, right? Well, this starts off with a question in response to what was before. Okay, here he sets he sets the um, the bar. He sets the expectation very clearly. God is free. It depends not on human will and not on exertion, but on God. Verse 16. How is he going to illustrate that? With Pharaoh. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, 
that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so even in God demonstrating His freedom to show compassion on whom He will and have mercy on whom He will, He he brings up Pharaoh whom He hardens so that He might show mercy to the children of Israel. Okay, That's where He was. And so there is both the hardening of Pharaoh going on and the mercy and compassion to Israel. So He has mercy on whomever He wills and hardens whomever He wills. Okay, That's our problem. We don't like to think about that. And so, if you think very long about it, you'll have this same question too, right? Will you say to me, why does God still find fault? If, if God saves, if it's all about God and not about free will, how then can God find fault with anybody? For who can resist God's will? If God wills to show mercy, you can't resist it. If God wills not to show mercy, you can't resist it. And if God, if God wills it and you can't resist it, how can God find fault? That's, that's the question. And, and the answer, as you may expect, is not easy. So, I'm going to answer part of it today, part of it next week. I want to invite you to come back next week. Uh, because He does find fault next week. And you need, to, you need to see why He finds fault next week. That's next week. This week, okay? Who can resist as well? This is His answer. Who are you? What kind of answer is that? That's an answer that tells us that God is the one who's free, that God is in a different category than I am, different category than you are, and we can, we can fight however we want with God, but ultimately, who are you to answer back to God? It's very much the same kind of conversation that you might have or that I might have with God that Job had. Right? Job had a similar conversation with God. It wasn't so much about God's choosing as much as it was then about God's allowing him to suffer undeservedly. How can God do that? And God just simply said, hey, were you there when I you know, hung the stars? Were you there when I created the world? Were you there when I, uh, in, in the deep recesses of the caves when the animals gave birth to their babies? Were you there? How does that happen? You don't know. Okay? We're not the same. And he said to Job, let God be God. And here Paul reminds us, let God be God. Who are you to answer back to God? And this is his illustration. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make one out of one, excuse me, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? Okay, easily translated, right? 
Does God not have the right to do as He pleases? It's interesting. This is a reference to Jeremiah. Okay, so you mean you've got part of your Bible that is called the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the story of, of God from the beginning up until what's known as the exile, when God executes judgment on His people. So God is judging Israel. Jeremiah is lamenting that. And Jeremiah says, you know what? Potter has right over the clay. Just like God made Israel, God has a right then to to throw the lump down and knead it again and to make it into whatever He wants. That's Jeremiah's picture. That's the one that Paul borrows here to say God can knead this lump however He wants. And He can make it into whatever He wants. He can add color. He can take... Uh, he can change shape. He can spin it. He can do all numbers of things with it. He is free. And so this is his punchline saying God is the free potter to do what He wants. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. This is probably something that you've never considered. That God might desire to show His wrath. Isn't that interesting? See, most of us, <laughs> most of us, when somebody's angry, it's usually when they lose control. It's usually they didn't mean to do that. I lost my temper, we would say. That's not the case with God. Part of what God wants you to know about Him is that He hates sin. That He is ready to throw the full force of His fury against rebellious sinners. Did you ever consider that? That God wants you to know that. He wants, He desires to show that wrath. So that you don't forget that He's different than you. So that you don't forget that God is unlike us in that He is a free and Glorious God in the the perfection of His rightness. That's different than you and me. We have moments when we're right and many, many moments when we're not right. Well, God is desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power. So, part of what, part of the reason that God chooses what He chooses is so that we would see God for who He is, not for what we think He should be. So this wrath is part of God's revelation. should be no surprise. If you've been with us for a while, if you've read the book of Romans, the theme of Romans 
is that in, in 116, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. This is good news. Okay, the gospel means good news. The, it is good news, then it is, it is made available to everyone who believes, to so the Jew first and also to the Gentile, because in it the rightness of God is revealed. In this good news, in the gospel, God demonstrates His perfection and His holiness and His anger against sin and in it, His righteousness. That God is right. Clearly, He demonstrates His love, His mercy, His compassion also. But that's what it tells us. That it demonstrates His righteousness. And then it says this. The introduction to this good news. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, so you notice what's at stake here is the unrighteousness of men, the, the wrongness, not the rightness. And they're not right by suppressing the truth. Because what can be known about God is plain to them. God's shown it to them. And then He says this, for the invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature. Okay, remember, He wanted to show His wrath and His power, right? And they're both here in the beginning of this book. Letting us know that the Gospel is the expression of His wrath and His power as much as it is His love and His mercy. They've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things which have been made so that they are without excuse. In the very beginning of this book, he told him, This is why God finds fault. Right? That's our question. How can God still find fault? Because they're still without excuse. They have uh, suppressed the truth about God and been wrong, not right, so that God, in His judgment of them and His rightness, God can show His wrath. And make his power known. Alright? So God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his known his power, has endured with much patience. So don't miss this. See, I'm just, I'm just going to stop here, okay, for a minute. And try and give you just a little bit of a, a picture. It's probably the wrong one about what's going on. As you may know, there was a magician who who won um, America's Got Talent this year. And what happens with a magician is a magician generally gets you looking at one thing and they do some sleight of hand and their trick, right? And they show this surprise to you. And your first question is, how did they do that? Okay, this is a little bit like that. All right, I, it's my job to be the one who tells you how the magician does the trick, which makes me kind of nervous. Okay, 
Because what's happening, I, I just am going to guess, if, it, if you're like every other person I've talked to who's read Romans 9, you get your eye on election. You get your eye on you know, God picking and choosing some, saving and hardening and blah, blah, blah. And you're like watching that. How is He going to fix that? And God's over here doing something different. And suddenly He says, surprise! And you know what happens? In Romans 11, 33-36, finally Paul just says, wow. Mind blown. How did He do that? Okay, that's, so that's what's going on here. Is he is in some respect explaining the trick in Romans chapter 9. This is part that when your eye is on election, when your eye is on, on God being free to choose, you forget this part that God is enduring with much patience vessels of wrath. Please don't forget that. That God is patient and kind. And He still is not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That is true. And He's enduring their rebellion. He's not rescuing them, per se, but He's enduring their rebellion on these vessels of wrath who are fit for or for whom it is appropriate that they be destroyed. Okay, that's what it means prepared for destruction. That word is the same one that some of you have heard in other places in the New Testament. We're talking to some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. So, these are vessels of wrath equipped for destruction who very clearly should be destroyed by virtue of their rebellion against God. And God's bearing with them. Okay, and he, by the way, He did this in the very beginning. He told Adam, if you eat from the tree, you will surely die. And guess what? Adam ate. And he hung around for a few years. God has from the beginning been patient. Why would God be patient? He's very clear about His reason here. In order to. So, in order to simply means I'm going to explain my reason for being patient with vessels of wrath. My reason is this. Because I want the vessels of mercy to fully appreciate what mercy means. To make known the riches of His glory. The the riches of the glory of His grace, it says in Ephesians. Now again, some of you will be so indignant about uh, there being such a thing as a vessel of wrath that you will fail to recognize how great the mercy is. And what God is doing here is God is reminding you of His wrath against sin so that when He shows you mercy, when He shows you love and kindness and compassion you have something to compare it to. And when you compare it, you say, what rich glory I have. 
He's showing the riches of His glory to the vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. The prepared beforehand is not the same as the prepared in the previous verse. So there are two different underlying words in the Greek. Okay. In other words, God does not relate to the vessels of wrath in the same way that He relates to the vessels of mercy. Okay. He freely rescues the vessels of mercy. And that is not the same. And He does it. He is determined to do that beforehand. That is not the same relationship excuse me, that He has with these vessels of wrath. And so He has decided beforehand He is going to rescue some. He's going to save some. Who? Don't miss this either, right? Even us, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. He has done this for us, not only from the Jews, but from the Gentiles. Okay, so I'm going to summarize this, this uh, picture that He's used to explain His freedom. There's a potter and a clay and He's molding whatever this clay is. He's molding it into whatever He wants it to become. Some vessels of honor, some for dishonor, some for mercy, some for destruction. And you know what He's also doing? He's pulling in some clay. Some Gentile clay. And He's rubbing it into the thing and He's squishing it around. He's molding it. He's putting on His thing and He's spinning it so that He gets out of it what He wants. So that He might show mercy on us. So that He might show the riches of His glory to us. That's the point of this. God is free. The second half here of this text. The first half is His freedom as the potter to make from the clay whatever He wants so that He might show His wrath and His glory. And then the second part is is really something. As indeed He says in Hosea. Okay? Hosea is a minor prophet. A prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, one that many people have never read. Hosea has the unenviable job of showing what he is prophesying. He, is, he, he does show and tell. He tells about what God is doing for unfaithful Israel by marrying a prostitute who is unfaithful to Him. They have children. He names them not beloved and not my people. That's the name of the children. Okay? Please don't take that into account if you're expecting. <laughs> he says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Those who are in her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. So what God is doing Again, in His freedom, the freedom, His freedom to keep His promise. Okay? His covenant promise. Like Hosea kept His covenant promise to His unfaithful wife. He is keeping His covenant promise to Israel. How? By telling Israel, I've had enough 
You are not my people. Telling Israel, you are not my people. Hosea's prophecy to Israel is that they were called not my people. And then later, they were made again to be God's people. He'd had enough. They were not beloved. Only later then did He call them beloved. And so what you have is the wrath of God being um, spent on Israel. The wrath of God being expressed to the nation of Israel. So they are cut off and then reestablished. Okay? This is not, not, see, what we, the way we normally read this, if we didn't go back to Hosea, would be to say, well, it must be speaking of the Gentiles who were not my people, and now they are the people. That's not what he's saying. Israel is not the people. And so this, this has a lot to say to a church that is split down the middle, Jews and Gentiles. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. So there is by virtue again of God's mercy and compassion on Israel, He is reestablishing them whom He had disowned as the sons of the living God. Again, quoting from the Old Testament. Not, it is not an accident. What's in red here is not an accident. Sons of God is what God's Holy Spirit tells the church that they have become. And so part of that Jewish clay and part of that Gentile clay molded together. They were not My people. Now they are My people. Now they are called sons of the living God. He's pretty intent on going back to the Old Testament and and saying this, God isn't wringing His hands saying, we have to come up with a new plan. God is not up there saying, I can't figure out what to do, so uh, let me see. God is saying from the beginning of the promise to Abraham and all the way through, I have been meaning to do this. And so Israel, or excuse me, in Isaiah, he says this concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Okay? Saved from what? Saved from his wrath. That's what. And what he is doing now in verse 27 is what he also did in verse 6. In verse 6, you remember, he said, not all Israel are those who have descended from Abraham. Okay? There are others who descend from Abraham that aren't part of the promise. Now he's saying again, there are part here of Israel who are not part of the promise, but only there's a remnant. There's just a few upon whom I show mercy. Even though the full number of this nation is like the sands of the sea. And so what he's saying here is that God is faithful in keeping His promise. His Word has not failed. He's not unjust. He is faithful in keeping His promise by rescuing a remnant. 
by saving only some, He is still keeping His promise. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Don't miss the promise in the midst of the wrath of God. So you can't take for granted the wrath of God. It is the very underpinnings of the promise. It is, in fact, it is God's way of dealing, the promise is God's way of dealing with His wrath in the world. Because it is God's way of dealing with evil in the world. That's what the promise is. And so, the promise here in the, in the center is a promise to save a few in the midst of His wrath as the way of taking care of His wrath against evil. Okay, so it goes back here again to Isaiah. Another quotation. So what he's doing is he's, is he's telling this church who is Jew, Jew and Gentile who feel like they don't really have their bearings on why they should be unified. He is telling them that God is faithful to His Word in preserving a remnant, or here in this verse, keeping an offspring. Okay, offspring, I think, is a synonym here for remnant. So God is saving some from out of the midst of all. And if He had not done that, we would all be under His judgment we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so what God is doing is He is explaining to the church how they have been rescued, how they represent in the midst of his, the, the, the display of His wrath, they represent this remnant upon whom He shows mercy. How could He pick a more forceful Well, the two most forceful, right? Pharaoh, the most forceful display of his power and wrath. And Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, you're not going to look at Pharaoh and Sodom and Gomorrah and say, God is fooling around. God's not fooling around. God is intent on saving by keeping a remnant by saving some by preserving his offspring otherwise we have been we would be completely judged like Sodom and Gomorrah so the wrath of god here frames his free rescue of a remnant god's god's display of his anger against evil is the backdrop to show us the glory of His saving mercy and compassion. Why is that important? It's certainly not important so that you walk around, you know, like, oh yes, God loves me, not you. That is not the thing at all that's happening here. 
what's happening is that God is doing His best to be clear about what, how He is dealing with His anger towards sin. And the outpouring of His love on vessels of mercy. Whom? Who's that? That's us. Right? Not just from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. So let me just review here how this works. The whole thing at stake is the righteousness of God. Is there injustice or unrighteousness, same word, with God? The central expression of the Gospel here in Romans 3 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Apart from it being defined as an ethnic or national thing for Israel. Although, the law and prophets that He gave them, that He happened to remind them of in Romans 9, verse 5. Okay. That manifests the righteousness of God. What is it? It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. What distinction is that? Between Jews and Gentiles. There's none. Because all of them have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, what are they to do if all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Well, he brings verse 25 here. Oh, my thing's not working. Sorry. Talking about being redeemed through Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Okay, that's a uh, that's an expensive word for a simple and beautiful truth, which means that this wrath of God that God desired to display. See, don't forget that, right? It is the wrath of God is revealed on all unrighteousness of men. God is showing wrath. How is He showing wrath? By placing His wrath on Jesus so it doesn't have to be on you. That is how God is displaying wrath. Amazing. That is how the vessels of mercy respond to the fact that God is showing wrath. It's like amazing that He would shield me from that by giving me Jesus. What do I do with Jesus? Notice it says, put forward a satisfaction of His wrath or a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. What do I do with this? I either believe it or I don't. I have to say, God, that is what I need. I don't want to be a vessel of wrath. I need You to save me from wrath. So I believe. I, I, I believe that it counts for me. And why would He do it? Back to the very thing. There's no unrighteousness with God. That's our question, right? Is there any justice with God? No. 
God demonstrated His wrath on vessels of wrath and on Jesus to show His righteousness. So He can be right. Even when He passes over sin. This is, this is the way that God can forgive sin and not be like some judge who somehow lets a felon go because they because he's unrighteous, right? You would not want to judge like that. But God has given the penalty of that sin to Jesus. The wrath that should be executed on my sin is given to Jesus so that God then can overlook my sin. It is amazing. That's His point. So that those who are vessels of mercy would think about the wrath of God executed not only on vessels of wrath, but also on Jesus and say, isn't that amazing? He wanted to show the vessels of mercy His glory. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we... We are humbled by the thought that You would show us mercy though undeserving. We're humbled even more that You would do it at the cost of Your Son. And so God, would You cause us to reflect on the beauty of what You are doing in the world, what You have done in the world through Jesus, what You've done in my own heart through because of Jesus. Would You cause us to reflect on that in a way that makes us amazed at Your glory? Father, thank You. Thank You for not leaving me to my own devices. Thank You not for, for not just letting me go my own way or letting me have my own free will. Father, I bless You that You have showered mercy. God, would You cause all of us to respond in faith and humility and love toward You for our good and for Your glory. Amen.